I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. So welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Dealmaker's DNA. Another fun one. I have a fellow who uh, I've gotten to know, I guess, recently. And his own daughter says that uh, I remind uh, her of you. So I think that as a massive compliment. <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> so I have a fellow named Rick Eckstein. Rick was the president and CEO of Weston Forest Products and Weston Forest Group of Companies, conducting business in over 40 countries and on four continents. Weston has repeatedly won a variety of awards, including Canada's Best Managed Companies, Profit 500, Fast Growing Companies, and uh, Waterstone Canada's Most Admired Corporate Cultures, which I'm sure uh, the culture side is what Rick probably thinks the most of. <laughs> and uh, Rick now runs uh, Phase 3. Uh, phase three is uh, was started in 2016. Um, it's an asset management investment uh, arm. They have a philanthropic arm and they have an advocacy arm, which I'm, sh- I'm sure we'll talk about uh, with uh, all three. So Rick, thank you uh, so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's an early morning on, uh, on a Wednesday. so uh, It might be early for you, but not for me. Len. Not for me either. I'm, I'm up at 5.30, so don't worry about it. <laughs> So, Rick, for those who don't know you, maybe just give a, a synopsis on, on you know, Weston. Um, we're going to dive a lot deeper on that, and then I want to start even earlier and talk about kind of your upbringing and how you got there. But just as a, a synopsis on, 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 on kind of the, what most people would know you for is, is, is being Weston, probably. It's hard to, to, to talk about a 40-year journey in two minutes, but I'll give you the uh, Reader's Digest version. My father owned a small, with a couple of partners, owned a very small lumber yard where I grew up as a kid, sweeping the floors. By the time I was 14, I could drive a forklift and unload a truck as fast as anybody else, which was my goal in life. And then I, when I turned 16, I became a truck driver. So now I've achieved all of the goals in my life. And, and was that here, like in Toronto? Here in Toronto. After university, I joined the company full-time as employee number 12. It was in 1978, and our sales were about $1.8 million. So my father didn't give me much in the way of a a background or a platform, but what he did give me is an opportunity. He said, listen, I've been doing this for 25 years, and I've got it to this size. He said, if you want to use it as a platform to build upon, you know, that's what I'm giving you is that opportunity. And a lot of hard work and a little bit of luck. Uh, That worked out well. Uh, my brother joined about five years later. We hired a bunch of very, very smart young people. We were all young. None of us knew that we weren't supposed to be able to do the things that we were doing. And uh, we built it up significantly. Um, it was about a couple hundred million dollars in sales around the year 2000. By that point, I was uh, 50 years old and I'm a planner. And I knew I didn't want to do this forever and I wanted to do other things. So at the age of 50, I said, by the time I'm 60, I don't want to be the managing partner of any of our companies. I don't want to be the majority shareholder of any of our companies. At the time, I think we had six or seven companies. I was on airplanes literally flying all over the world all of the time. And we were doing very well. But it was, uh, you know, it's a tough way to live. And I had lots of other things I wanted to do. So we sold a couple, we merged a couple, and uh, by the time I turned 59, I think, I was no longer the president of anyone, and I was no longer the majority shareholder. We spent about 10 years working with psychologists, with coaches, and business advisors, making key executives in each company uh, shareholders. And uh, I'm proud to say that Today, if the companies were all still together, there'd be about $500 million in sales. And we have some unbelievable people that are now running the businesses. So it's been a good ride. Rick, you mentioned something that I find very fascinating because I think about it myself all the time. You mentioned how when you first got started, you didn't use the word naivety, 
but you used the word, we didn't even know that we weren't supposed to be doing these things, which is in a sense naivety. I'm a massive believer that like a huge part of why I've been successful is because I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be. And uh, that naivety played a huge role in that. Maybe talk me through that kind of early stage of it and how important it is to like not know that you have a ceiling. Yeah, I think there was probably three or four parts to that. Uh, number one, I was brought up either working in the lumber yard as a kid or on my uncle's farm shoveling manure. And I was brought up with this incredibly hard, this work ethic of hard work. And I was basically told that, you know, I was just a little kid, but I could keep up with it. My uncle would tell me, you know, or my dad would tell me, you know, you can keep up with the big guys. So I had this hard work ethic instilled in me from a young age. And then my mom was a Holocaust survivor. She lost her parents when she was eight years old, and she was taken to live with a Christian family. She was actually baptized, and a priest was looking after her. And you could turn her story into a movie. So she instilled in me the belief that I can do anything and I can survive anything because if she survived what she did, there's nothing worse. So I started off with this ethic of hard work and the belief that I could do anything. And then my own craziness, I'm not sure why, I had this terrible fear of failing. I never wanted to fail. I never wanted to let people down. Uh, I wanted to show people what I could do. So that's sort of the bedrock of where I started from. And when you start from that and you set yourself a goal, nothing can get in your way. And there was nothing that motivated me more. I mean, your mother's the clinical psychologist. Maybe you can tell me why. When someone said, that's not the way it's done. There's a proper distribution channel and you have to stick to that. And for whatever reason, that would motivate me more than anything else when someone told me, this is the way it's always been done and you'll never do it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, funny enough, I'm, I'm smiling now because I had a, uh, I was nominated for top 40 under 40 and I did a caliper test yesterday. I'd never done one before. Congratulations, by the way. Oh, thanks. Well, I don't know if I'm going to get it or not, but uh, I did the caliper test. I've never done one and it took me quite a while to kind of go through the, the process, which is not easy for someone as ADD as me. And uh, one of the things they said, like, you have an extreme distaste of like process and systems and you want to do it your way. I'm like, you know, it, it's funny. I mean, people kind of view business people and finance brains through the lens of kind of math, but like, I'm not so sure that there isn't an art aspect to business. And somehow we get separated from, you know, quote unquote artists that are creative. But I'm a big believer that uh, I know a lot of great business people that, that would fall into the category of artists because they, they are creative. They like, you know, painting a canvas in a different way through the lens of building businesses. But I, I'm not so sure that isn't an, art, an artistic component to their, their personality. No, it's, uh, it's absolutely true. My wife is an artist and uh, we talk about this. We used to talk about this a lot in the beginning that, you know, you start with a vision and just as she would start with a vision on a canvas and then you get to work and you don't worry about what the obstacles are. You just worry about how you're going to do it. And uh, that, that commitment, that desire to succeed, I think that overcomes a lot of things. You know, years ago, and now I talk about it to young people all the time. Uh, maybe I'll share it with you. I've, I've sort of broken down, you know, a good leader into having six C's, six categories. So the first C that I think every good leader has is courage. You know, you have to learn to have the courage to take chances. I had to fight my family a lot of times. You know, it takes, it takes a lot of courage to say, we're going to do something brand new. I mean, look at a Steve Jobs who would stand up and say, I'm doing something that nobody has ever done. I'm inventing an iPad that people don't even know that they're going to need. I mean, so I think every leader needs a certain amount of courage. And if you don't have that, you might as well stop right there. The second C for me is commitment. You've got to make up your mind that I'm going to crawl through glass and fire before I quit. You know, I used to be a mountain climber in my younger days, and I was been to Everest and I've done Mount Kilimanjaro. And you know, at six o'clock in the morning after you've been climbing for 20 hours, there's a point when you go, you know, it would be real easy to quit right now. 
And I'm sure you've had a few of those situations in business yourself where it would be so much easier to go home, but a real successful leader doesn't quit. They just keep on going. So that commitment, I think, is one of the biggies for me. The third one is a curiosity. I think you and I share that as well. You want to know everything about it, about everything. I use Sam Walton when I teach leadership and, you know, turned out to be one of the greatest retailers in the world. No matter where he went, he'd walk into every store and start asking and quizzing the salespeople, why do you do it this way? And why is this particular item here as opposed to here, you know, from a product placement point of view? So you've got to be very curious about everything because the more curious you are, then you'll discover opportunities. My fourth one is communication because you can have the greatest ideas in the world and put the greatest team together. But if you can't communicate your vision to them, you'll never get anything accomplished. And I know you do that very well within your organization. So that's a huge one. My fifth one is compassion. I learned very early assholes don't last very long. You have to do everything you can to help out your staff, your customers, your suppliers. And if you can do that over a course of time, even when there's nothing in it for you, Sooner or later, there'll be something in it for you, whether it be loyalty or anything else. And then my sixth C is to be a great leader. You got to be a little bit crazy. I like that one. <laughs> Name one big leader, you know, whether it's Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or anybody else, that's not a little bit crazy. And, you know, some of it is just the fact that you work 24 hours a day and go on these huge road trips and do everything else. The commitment, I mean, most people would call that commitment crazy. And sometimes you got to do crazy things. I remember in China once we were negotiating a deal with the mayor of a city and it was getting really, really late. And he kept bragging to me how strong he is. He works out all the time. So we challenged each other to a push-up contest in the middle of the road. His bodyguards blocked the road outside this restaurant in China at one in the morning. And whoever won, that would be, you know, how the deal swung. And there we are having a push-up contest at one in the morning. And my sales guy who was with me is going, Rick, you're out of your freaking mind. Tell me you won at least. I won. Of course I won. <laughs> uh, you know, you got to be a little bit crazy to be a good yeah. leader. How do you balance that? I mean, one of the things that, that, that struck me as curious uh, in something you said earlier was when you were, you were talking about how you didn't want to be a president CEO. And, and you mentioned this exact word that I'm a planner, right? I find that curious because... I, I kind of think I know what you mean, but a lot of people would say that those extreme kind of extrovert entrepreneurs, the crazy types, aren't planners. Yet, I don't know if I agree. I think that there is there, there there's that dichotomy between you know being crazy but still having a vision. But talk to me what you mean by I'm a planner. It's like building a house, you know, a vision. You have to start with a diagram because if not, you get your pl your plumber in and your carpenter in and electrician in and they all start doing their things and you end up with this monstrosity. So you have to have a pretty good idea where you're going. After the first few years in business, where I just spent all my time on the road visiting people, suppliers, potential suppliers, anybody that used lumber, made lumber, I would visit with them and just try and learn as much as I can, even though, as I could, even though most of it didn't apply at the time. And after three or four years, I actually laid out a vision for what I thought the company should look like 10, 15, 20 years. And did you write it down? Like, did you actually go through the process writing it down? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just big on that, just who I am. I'm a flowchart kind of guy. And I sketched it out. And listen, you deviate a little bit because as opportunities come, you might run off here and you're right, right, and you're right off there. But at the end of the day, I kept trying to come back to my vision. And... It was the same thing when I, I turned 50. You know, I spent a lot of time building up a network of, of supporters or a network of counselors, uh, mentors that I could work with. And I kept hearing that if you want to do a proper exit and really maximize the value you're getting for your business, start 10 years in advance. So I actually put together a plan. Um, we identified key leaders uh, in each one of our business. And uh, we made them partners, as I said. We had to mentor them because it's a big shift going from being, you know, an employee and the best salesman to all of a sudden now you're a partner and everything that that means. And uh, also recognize that, you know, training and teaching and mentoring was not necessarily something we knew how to do. 
So we brought in a lot of experts to help. And, uh, you know, that was all part of the plan. And uh, we were able to succeed. But, you know, I know people today who tell me, you know, they're 60, 65 years old and they want to retire. And I said, great, you know, what's your succession plan? Well, haven't really thought about that yet. Well, if you don't think about it now, you're not going to maximize the value of your exit. You know, business I'm in, so I, I, I see that all the time. Sure, you feed on people who don't plan. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I mean, sometimes the best succession plan is just to sell. So, you know, does that maximize? I think you'll agree, Elon, whether you want to build a great company to keep or build a great company to sell, you still have to do the same things. Totally. Totally. You still need a great you still need a great team in place. Yeah. Right? With great leaders. So, yeah, no, I, I I totally agree with you. I view myself as a as a fairly decent leader. I really feel like I know how to lead people. Yet I am acutely aware that I'm not the best trainer and mentor and manager and those are very different things. Maybe talk about what made you aware of that because I find a lot of great leaders aren't great teachers. And, and that, that sounds weird, but I think it's true. But maybe tell me if you agree, disagree, you know, why? It's a good question. I think part of it is you have to be self-aware. Um, if you're not self-aware, you're in trouble. Um, the best thing I did, and I'm not shy to admit it, is I had years of therapy many years ago. I had some problems, you know, family business is never easy. Uh, I, had, I had a brother and a father. At the time, of course, I thought it was all their fault. With hindsight and with therapy, I realized that uh, it was all our fault, and uh, we worked through it. But I recognized then that I wasn't capable of solving that problem by myself. So I went and I got therapy. Well, I lived with a therapist, so I I got therapy all day. But I think realizing, being self-aware enough that you realize you can't do it by yourself and you need help is where it starts. So just as I realized I couldn't solve my own um, mental issues by myself and I had to get help, I realized that you know I am not always the best teacher. But more importantly, I grew up in one business, which was you know, this family business. I don't have the experiences that others do who have you know, benefited from growing up in a big company where there was mentoring and training, et cetera. So I realized I was lacking in that. So just as in any case, when I don't know what to do, I go out and found an ex- find experts and because uh, I'm aware enough that I don't know everything. And uh, I found a fellow who uh, was able to work uh, very closely with our team and with myself, because when you're, you're transitioning out of a leadership role and into more of a mentorship or chairman type role, part of the mentoring was for me and teaching me how to let go and to get out of the weeds and to let my guys make some mistakes. And, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur who likes to control everything, that's something you have to learn. So I think the, the uh, being aware of you know, my strengths and my weaknesses allowed me to get that help for both the guys who we were training and for myself. Yeah, so I've always said that I truly believe that self-awareness is my greatest gift. I believe that self-awareness, and I use this term a lot, I believe self-awareness is the key that unlocks potential. Because if you know what you're good at and you know what you're bad at, you can double down on your strengths and find people to complement your weaknesses. My question to you is actually is a very direct question. How much of self-awareness do you think is born and how much do you think is bred? Because unfortunately, I fall on the, in the camp of, I truly believe self-awareness for the most part is nature. I think that people are born with a, a level of self-awareness and others just have no clue. I think I'll fight you on that one a little bit. That's what I wanted. <laughs> you know, it's you, you basically you're asking, you know, can you be anything that you really want to be? You, you um, know I'm going to get to it, so you might as well get to it now. <laughs> well, but that includes can you be self-aware or can you be anything for that matter? Yeah, well, see, I, I disagree because I think that there's there are some characteristics that are far more able to be swayed by nurture than others. You know, I think that 
if you work out hard enough, you can get stronger. That's a very that's a very nurture driven characteristic. I think that there's a lot of things like t- like tenacity and drive that are are born, but th- things fall in, in a spectrum of nature and nurture, in my opinion. Yeah, listen, do I think I can do anything I want to do? Yes. Now, genetics helps a little bit. Will I ever be, I'm a little guy, will I ever be the uh, heavyweight champion of the world? No. Boxing champion of the world? No. Well, then you can't genetics, My genetics just won't. I might be the lightweight, but I'll never be the heavyweight just because of genetics. I, I don't know. I come from the school where it depends how badly you want something. You know, as I said, genetics make it a little bit easier, but there's, uh, I think the, the shortest NBA star is five foot two or five foot three or... Muggsy Bogues was the that's shortest. That's the guy. Yeah. That was five two or five three I mean, or something. I think on paper he's five two, he may be even shorter. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, a lot of people say, Rick, you'll never be an NBA star because you're, you know, you're too short. So Muggsy has proven the point that height doesn't bar you from being an NBA star. I mean, look at Sam Walton grew up. I always use him as my, whenever I teach leadership, this guy grew up poorer than poor, you know, in a a little cabin with dirt floor type of thing, but he wanted it. And I think if you want something bad enough, first of all, you evaluate, you know, what skill sets you have and what skill sets you need. And then you figure out what that Delta is and you can go out and learn that Delta. That in itself implies a self-awareness. Like your starting point starts with self-awareness and some people just don't even have that. And that's, that's what I think is the problem is because you're self-aware, you know how to view the world through the lens of being realistic where others don't. I don't know if you want something bad enough. Okay. And I know maybe you and I are the wrong examples, but if you want something, if I want something bad enough, I'm going to go out and ask somebody, how do I get it? And what, you know, what skill set am I lacking, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, you know, you look at the people who are Olympic athletes and people like that. I mean, they want it and they're prepared to do, you know, some of these people train 18 hours a day, every day for years so that they can be in the pool for, you know, 72 seconds type of thing. So I don't know. I think if you want something bad enough now, I suppose the question is, is the want and the desire genetic or not? But if you want something bad enough, you know, within a little bit of reason, I think you can go out there and figure out what you're lacking and how to get there. And then it comes back to commitment. But to be the best in the world, that's the thing that, that, that's where I get, that's where I disagree. I think that there are enough billions of people on planet earth that there will be at least three people that want it bad enough. But then the problem is you have Usain Bolt and He's just genetically gifted, wants it just as much as you, and look at what happens. I mean, those guys in the Olympics all wanted it just as much as Usain Bolt, but he wins. And, you know, there's this comedian who I love, and he talks about racing in a very funny way. He's like, you know, and and I think this, this relates to life in general. He's like, racing is the weirdest thing in the world. It's the greatest in the world, never heard of you. And just that there's no difference between the greatest millionaire, successful, never fucking heard of you. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, that's, it's a great analogy for life in general. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to agree on this one, and I'm not sure if there is a complete and total right or wrong. But I do believe to a very large degree that if you want to do something bad enough, you'll figure out a way to do it. Most people just don't want it bad enough. They just don't set their sights high enough, in my opinion. I think if you wanted it bad enough, you accomplish it. I don't think that holds true for most people. Because like you say, that crazy, going back to your six C's, that crazy is, do you learn that? Are you born with it? You know, it's funny. Earlier on, you were talking about your, your mother and you said something. You said, I had my work ethic instilled. Okay. You specifically used the word instilled, which is a, a nurture driven characteristic where I'm on a question. Did you really think you had your work ethic instilled or were you just, you came from your mom? You just like, that's your DNA. No, from my mom, I got the, I can do anything I want because, you know, she survived the war and, you know, under terrible conditions. Growing up, I grew up either, you know, my, my dad was on the lumber side and I would, he would take me to the lumber yard every day from the, every Saturday from the time I was eight years old. And, 
you know, there was a bunch of rough, tough guys there, very macho type environment. And they would put me on the end of a saw and say, Rick, try and keep up with us type of thing. So, you know, they taught me that hard work ethic. And, uh, you know, my goal was to keep up with those guys. My uncle had a dairy farm and, uh, you know, he would send me out to shovel manure and he'd say, let's see who can empty a box stall quicker, you or I. There was always this macho competition. They're the ones that gave me the work ethic and I, because I always wanted to keep up with the guys in the lumber yard or with my uncle and the guys on the farm, even though I was half their age and half their size. So that's where the hard work came in. You had probably the most un-Jewish upbringing I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we grew up poor. I, I, I actually said this to my father once later in life that, you know, we grew up poor. And he said, listen, you always had a roof over your head. You always had food on the table and you were always wearing clothes. So he was right. But, you know, we grew up without very much. There was, you know, five of us in a 900 square foot home. We never thought it was small. You know, I guess relative to where we live today, it certainly was. You know, even when I started, the year I started in 1978, my dad made $50,000, which, you know, was a living. Uh, we didn't go on any holidays when we were kids. I think the first time they drove it, they took us to Florida when we were like, I was 16. I don't think my parents took a holiday for the first 10 years. Three years after I, four years after I started in the lumber business, we made a million dollars that year. And my dad literally nearly had a heart attack. It was something he just couldn't imagine. And uh, it was actually very hard on him, as, as silly as that might sound from someone who had scrimped, literally scrimped and saved and, you know, done everything possible to, uh, to feed his family on, you know, $40,000, $50,000 a year to suddenly make that kind of money. So those were fun days. When you say hard, what, what, what do you mean by that? Because it was fun. I, I was watching a podcast recently and someone was talking about how people don't do a good job accepting success in a way and that there's this like negativity that comes with like all you hear all day long is the one percent the one percent and it's like if, you, if i were to say the one percent there's an automatic negativity that comes with that so i'd love to hear what you mean by that and whether you agree and, and what people should do to accept success i think him it's a little it was a little bit different you know he had no safety net it's not like his father um you know, had a lot of money behind him. My grandfather was a scrap dealer. Again, going back to the hard work, he would collect scrap all week, uh, all day, and then he would dump it out in his garage at night. And I'd go over there and we'd help sort out the copper from the nickel and everything else. I learned at a very young age, copper is good. But he had no, no safety net and he had three kids and, you know, a house and a business. And, you know, all of a sudden we made this money, this big pot of money. And he was so afraid that it was going to be a one-time deal. You know, I wanted to reinvest in it and buy a couple more trucks and get some more inventory. And he just wanted to hang on to it because he was afraid this would never happen again and uh, it wouldn't continue. And it continued in year, you know, this, the year after, the year after. And he continued to just want to hoard it and hang on to it, which is, you know, where some of our differences came about. But he just couldn't believe he suddenly had this much money and he was afraid it was all going to, you know, get blown in one big mistake or that this was just a, an anomaly in time in the business world. And he would go back to just, you know, barely making a living again. So I think that was at the time I didn't understand his motivation completely, but I think that was a lot of it. It was just fear of going back to having nothing. But do you see others that, that, that have this you know, this lack of acceptance of being successful and being proud of it, because I definitely see a common trend amongst successful entrepreneurs that they're, they're modest to a fault at times. And that I think that being someone that others can look up to, you have to kind of be verbose at times and, and explain, you know, what I did. And yes, I am successful. And yes, I, I have accomplished these things. And I find a lot of successful entrepreneurs don't like talking about their successes. I don't mind talking about it, but at the same time, I make sure I talk about the fact that it didn't just come, that it wasn't just handed to me. You know, I talk about the, you know, the number of hours I would drive. I mean, I had 
once a week I would drive 18 or 20 hour days, you know, visiting either customers or suppliers. In the beginning, I used to go for two or three weeks at a time to Asia or to the Middle East and run around visiting all the countries there. And my wife was ho- was at home all by herself. So I don't mind talking about the success, but I also talk about how hard I worked to get there and how many nights I didn't sleep because I was making a big bet on a particular new business that we were starting or you know how many times I would be up all night because we'd have problems with uh, you know in Saudi Arabia with some product that we had shipped over there. There was a lot of sleepless nights. There was a lot of worrying. There was a lot of risk taking, and there was a lot of hard work. So I think as long as you talk about how you got there, and it was certainly wasn't easy, I don't mind talking about the fact that it's turned out well. You mentioned basically that you got your work ethic beat into you by you know trying to keep up. How do you ha- like, like you grew up poor. You you have to work hard. How do you hack that into the next generation? I mean, I know your daughter very well, as you know, and she works her ass off. You obviously did something right in that process. What do you think the tools that parents sh- should use that are providing their, their their children with more? Because if you look at boxing, as you, you used that example earlier, almost every single champion boxer comes from the slum, right? Like poverty. It's very difficult to because hack. Because they, they, and they wanted to get out of that badly. Exactly. It's very difficult to hack that. So my point is, how do you instill that drive, that need, that desire into children that don't grow up poor? Well, there's no question that it's a little more difficult because just being my children or your children, they're growing up with advantages that we didn't have. But specifically with our kids, we insisted that when they were 14, they both get 13 or 14, I think 14, that they both start working. They both worked in the mall. I think Steph worked in a card shop and uh, Michelle worked in a bathing suit shop. And during the summers, uh, they came to the lumberyard and worked. Steph, when she was 14, she was typing invoices, you know, for one of the ladies in the office and, and they made her work pretty hard. Michelle didn't like the office. Uh, she was out in the mill piling lumber and, uh, you know, she could operate a forklift and a machine and, uh, So she learned her hard work that way. And the other thing is, whenever I was home, which wasn't always, we always had dinner together. And I always made a point of talking to them about business. My kids knew about the business from the time they were, you know, young teenagers. I heard these stories, actually, funny enough. And they were my sounding board, you know, and I wouldn't come home and, you know, maybe I'd talk about the successes, but really what I talked about at dinner time was I had a situation. I'm not quite sure how to handle it. What do you guys think? And they grew up understanding how difficult it was sometimes because they were included in everything and they saw how hard I worked. And I think that helped uh, instill a work ethic in them. And they've, they've, they've both got it. They, neither one is afraid to work hard. But you took actionable steps to make that happen. Like, I think if you if you just leave it alone and, and just hope they get the drive, I think it's a recipe for disaster. I think that you have to take actionable steps. I mean, one of the things that, that we do with our kids is that they have to do chores. They got to do stuff. They have, to, they have to work for what they get. Like, we pay them, like, we give them a dollar if they help with these sorts of things. And I, I want to start even at an early on, like my kids are eight and six, but I still want them to understand that you need to attach work to dollars and that, you know, when they get their clothes for free, basically, and everything's just given to them, they're like, that that didn't fall out of a tree, that someone had to at least put the effort in to get it. But talk to them about what you do. I mean, I don't know if they know what you do and, you know, they're still pretty young, but let them know how hard it is. Let them know when you fail sometimes. Let them know the concept that, you know, dad risks his money by taking chances on companies and on people. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work so well, in which case you double down and you, you know, I, I'm pretty sure you're the kind of guy that jumps in and tries to fix it. And once in a while you fail, but I think let them know that it, the money just doesn't come. You work very, very hard for it. 
Yeah, you know what? I, I don't do a good enough job of that. So I think that's good. That's good advice and some advice that I, my, my wife always asks me what I do and she probably doesn't even know what I do because I don't speak about it. And my comment has always been, you know, I've worked so, so hard and so many hours that like when I get home, I don't want to. Like I genuinely don't want to because I want that being my kind of reprieve from thinking about work all the time and it's my time to get off the treadmill mentally. But you're right. I mean, you know, maybe I shouldn't look at it that way and, uh, and use it as a, as a tool that, that, that helps me, you know, rear my children the right way. So I, I will take your advice on that, Rick. I'll give you just, you know, one more little reason why, because if you're anything like me, when you come home, you can be home, you can be with the kids, but your brain is still partially going with something at work. You can be in a movie, you can be in pretty much any situation and you're still thinking. And they're aware of that because they can see you. You know, my wife will always give me that look and she said, there's smoke coming out of your ears because she knows my brain is uh, going full blast. And if you let the kids and your wife know what you're doing and the, the challenges that you face every day, they'll understand a little bit more when your eyes glaze over and, uh, you know, you're not fully with them. So I think it's very important that your kids and your wife understand what you do, how important it is, because at some point they're going to say, Dad, why aren't you with us all the time? And uh, they won't understand. Great point. So, Rick, I, I want to transition to philanthropy, advocacy, but I, I want to go through one other thing. It was one of the first things you spoke about about 40 minutes ago, and it's been in the back of my head. You spoke about your motivations, and specifically you said that you have a fear of failing. And uh, I am this, exactly the same way. My, for, for whatever reason, what motivates me more than the things that I want is the things that I don't want to lose and, and the fears and, and my own ego. And, you know, I talk about, I have a huge chip on my shoulder. And for whatever reason, people say that like, that's a negative thing. You shouldn't be motivated by fear of failing or chip on your shoulder. But like, I don't agree. I think that's a, that's a healthy thing to motivate you. And I'm wondering whether you agree, whether you, you know, whether you think it is a good thing, whether you've learned things through that process of, of, of having that fear. Because there's no question that for me personally, the fear of failure is a much bigger motivator than the desire for things. Yeah, I don't know, you know, and this could go back to your nurture and nature, but I think it's more nurture again. I don't know exactly how to describe where this fear of failure came from. Maybe it was the, maybe part of the reason was because, you know, my dad was so cautious and I, I always wanted to do these new things and I never wanted to walk into his office and say, oops, this one didn't work because that wouldn't have been pretty. So maybe that's where it came from. But fear is the most, is, is the strongest motivator in the world, I think. You know, maybe it's not 100% healthy, you know, on your body and your, on your mind, but it is, in my opinion, the single largest motivator. And as we grew, you know, bigger and branched out into different parts of the world and opened companies and offices in different parts of the world, the consequences of failing were bigger. So the fear even was bigger. And as I said, I don't know whether it's the healthiest thing or not, but I could probably agree, and I hadn't really thought about it, that it was the number one driver of success that I can give credit to. And is that still a driver for you or, or have you kind of passed that point? I've pretty much passed that point now because there's nothing I can do at this stage that will wipe me out or will bankrupt me. You know, today I make investments. We have an investment strategy. It's part of the planning. And, you know, everybody, someone can come in and tell me, here's all the upside. And my question is, what's the downside? Because the upside I know is it's going to be good. Just the question of how, how good. I want to know what the downside is. And if the downside is I can lose a few bucks, I'm okay with that. If the downside is I'm going to lose absolutely everything, I'm just not going to touch it. And in business, when we were growing, there were a few times that the downside could have been you know, about losing everything, but it could have made a significant dent. So today the fear isn't there quite as much. So, so let's transition to, I mean, you alluded to one arm of, of phase three. I know phase three is your I guess I'll call it family office. That's probably the best way to describe it. And uh, the investment side, I think, is a fairly obvious side of, of, of a family office. And one, the definition of what most people would consider a family office is the investment side. 
The other two sides are really interesting. I want to talk about, you know, philanthropy and advocacy specifically and why that's such a big motivator for you. Because I, I think you probably spend more of your brain power in those two sides today versus the investment side. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think there's actually four parts. There's my there's my political side as well. But I'll give you my my quick theory on that that I've learned over the years is that your network is everything. I don't know how you approach your network, but for me, having a, a, a continuously growing network of people gives me success. It keeps me interested. I meet lots of friends. It's interesting, etc. So I've always tried very hard to, to grow that network. So the business network is one where I've, and I've been chairman of all of the major lumber associations. I always wanted to do something to give back. Um, so I always did a little bit of charity, but you know, now I really wanted to do something to give back to Canada. And um, my wife and I talked about this a lot. We're first generation, you know, as we've talked about several times, we came with nothing and and we've done very well. And we started talking about how can we give back? How does one give back to a country? And we know that the most respected organization in, in, in the country is the military. Wanted to do something for the military. And then my wife said, well, what about the families? You know, she says, I spent half my life waiting for you to come home. What's it like for the families who have to spend half their life waiting for their uh, military members to come back from deployment? And she said, you know, at least I knew you. Nobody was shooting at you, at least not deliberately. And, uh, you know, how do these families survive knowing that their husbands and wives are in deployment for six months? Anyways, and that's how we started this foundation for to support military families. But again, that that charity part is it just keeps increasing my network more and more. The advocacy side, I do a lot of work on behalf of the Jewish community and a couple of other organizations, lobbying politicians on issues that are important to us. And then the fourth part is just my love of politics, um, where I spend a lot of time. But the benefit is that my circle of contacts is constantly expanding. I meet somebody on a charitable board, and what do you do, what do you do? The next thing I know is we're doing a, a deal together. I meet somebody new in business, and the next thing I know they can contribute money to our charity. You know, I meet a new politician and I find out that their interest is X, this happens to be the same interest as, you know, something I'm advocating on, and the next thing you know, I've got a new partner in advocacy. So it's partly because of the fact that I like to learn so much and I'm such a curious guy and I want to meet new and interesting people. But the benefit is that your network just keeps enlarging and enlarging and enlarging. And whether you know you want to get something accomplished in politics and advocacy and charity or in business, you keep meeting people that help you do all of this. How do you maintain those relationships? Because I have a really tough time remembering everyone's names. Forget about, you know, the, like the, how I'm connected. You know, there, there, there's been this theory that I believe the number is 150, that you can't have more than 150 people that you, you know, that you have a meaningful relationship with. How do you, like, do you have an, a, a system for helping you? By now you should know I have a system for everything. So everybody, you know, there's, there's, there's several parts. Number one is everybody I meet, I have a database. And they go into that and I check off sort of boxes, you know, are they a political friend, this, that, the next thing. And, you know, at, uh, at Christmas and New Year's, I'll send out blasts to my whole network at, uh, you know, various other times. If it's, I've got my Jewish list, I've got my, you know, Easter list. So I stay in touch that way. Um, that's sort of the, the highest level of a mass blast. And I've probably got close to 3,000 people in that network. I attend a lot of events and, you know, networking events. Uh, I'm constantly going to places where I can meet, you know, 20, 30, 50 people at a time. And even now during COVID, I try and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working very hard these days and a lot of hours. I try and make sure I make one phone call or one Zoom call a day with somebody that's important to me in my network that I just don't talk to on a regular basis. So I actually have a list and I'm working it down. And every single day I touch base with somebody who I haven't talked to in months, but yet I consider important. So I work very hard at maintaining, at building my network 
and on maintaining those relationships. In all my companies, everybody jokes that Rick's the guy that knows a guy. And I'm not an expert on anything, but I always know a guy that is. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, you know, net, networks are so important. It's one of the topics that has been brought up by, by other uh, people that I've interviewed in the past is, is the mentorship relationship. And it's, no, it's not too dissimilar. It's just a different person in your network that, that acts as a mentor. And I think that having people around you that have that experience is, is just fundamentally important because it, it prevents you from having to make the mistake, right? I mean, that's really what it is. I'll give you a simple example. I'm on the board of the C.D. Howe Institute, and which is one of the arguably the best and most respected think tank in Canada. And I met, and we put. They asked the government asked us to put together a committee to give them advice on COVID. And on this committee shows up a, a fellow who is the CEO of one of the gen, the largest general contractors in Canada. You'd know the name; it's a very public uh, name. And we get to know each other a little bit. And now I've got an investment in a company, and all of a sudden they have to start posting construction bonds that nobody knew anything about. And so we get this board call, and you know we have to post construction bonds, and what's it mean? We don't know if we can afford it. You know, it was it was a big issue for this particular company. So and everybody's going, who knows anything about performance bonds? I said, well, I know nothing, but I now know the CEO of the biggest general contractor in Canada. And I called him up and he very kindly agreed to uh, lend us his CFO and the person that's in charge of performance bonds. And, you know, I put two and two together and solved the problem. So I didn't know a damn thing about it, but I knew a guy. And uh, to me, that's the key is always having a guy that you can go to. And the reason I met this guy is because I'm I'm involved in advocacy. I would have never met him otherwise. So it all just seems to keep going in a big circle and tie together. So, Rick, I know I got about five minutes left with you, and I'll, I will abide by the time constraints. Before I let you go, and, and I could speak to you for about four hours. Uh, yeah, this has been fun. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for those that are, that are listening, because you probably forgot that we're even being recorded, like I told you we would. One of the things that I want them to get is from people that have been successful and have gone through... Uh, you know, a career and learn things along the way. Are there kind of a few lessons that you've learned that you could provide to those that are trying to follow a similar path? Maybe lessons to to drive success or also things or pitfalls to try and avoid. I know that you mentioned the six C's, which are awesome. I've actually written them down. But are there other lessons that you've learned along the way that that, that you would like to kind of mention before before we finish? Sure, I guess... There might be two or three or four. Number one is networking, which we've just talked about. If you want to be successful, grow your network. That's that's priceless. Second thing is, and I don't know who actually came up with this saying, but I use it all the time. If I'm the smartest guy in the room, I'm in the wrong room. Whoever came up with that is brilliant, but I never want to be the smartest guy in the room. I surround myself always uh, in businesses with you know people who are smarter than me and who bring different skills to the table. I think the minute you think that you're the smartest guy in the room and you are the smartest guy in the room, you know, you're done. So surround yourself with brilliant, brilliant people, the smartest people that you can. Be prepared to, one of my mottos is change or die. The world changes around us continuously. We've seen it for the last 40 years and we're certainly seeing it the last four or five months. If you're not afraid, if you can't, if you're unable and you're the kind of person that cannot pivot, and change on a dime, you will die as a business. So I think that change component. And then I think the last one, I think, would be develop the culture that you want to be associated with. You know, culture, you've heard the saying, culture trumps strategy every day. There's no right or there's no wrong. You know, McDonald's has a different culture. You know, it's very programmatic. Would you like fries with that? Then Starbucks, where they all look like they're surfer hippies and, you know, want to try it and joke around. It's completely and totally different. But establish a culture around you. The two words that I always include in culture are fun and opportunity for the people around us. I want them to come to work and have fun because I think that's huge. And I want to make sure that they, everybody around me continuously has opportunity to grow. Because if they don't have opportunity, why are they going to stick around? 
So that's part of the culture that I believe in. And I don't know, there's my four, three or four. I love that. Rick, thank you so much for joining me. You know, we, we may have to do, you know, number two at some point, because I think there's a lot more we can discuss. But for those uh, listening that, that, that kind of want to follow along in, in your journey, how do they best do that? I know that uh, one of the things that they can do is support uh, Together We Stand, which is uh, one of your, your, your charities uh, that Firepower has been a part of, and it's an incredibly uh, amazing organization helping military families. Uh, are there other ways that they can uh, follow along your journey? I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. We're just coming out with a new Phase 3 uh, website. So I can be found on social media and uh, anywhere else. And uh, yeah, I do want to say thank you to Firepower. Uh, You have been one of our generous sponsors uh, for Together We Stand. Military families, especially right now, are having a more difficult time when their spouses are away because they actually have have a written family plan that they can count on to help them normally but it's not helping right now because they can't associate with these other people because of quarantines. The operational tempo has been very, very large for the military. And then they have to quarantine two weeks before and two weeks after. And they went into these long-term care facilities. I talked to a fellow who has been in Iraq, Afghanistan, and a long-term care facility in Quebec. He told me he would rather be in Iraq or Afghanistan. So we're trying to help out their families because these people are helping out ours. So thank you very much for your contribution in the past. And I hear you're going to double it this year. So uh, that's uh, very much appreciated. And thanks for having me on today. It was fun. Uh, I love talking to other entrepreneurs and I hope it worked out well. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And, uh, And that's it. Until next time. Thanks, guys. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.